This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its original promise of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, June 18, 2023. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Today, we're going to talk with the Missouri Equity Education Partnership, or MOEP. We'll talk about the role of diversity, equity, and inclusion in education. But first, Dirt Road Radio wishes to address their backers, supporters, contributors, and friends. They would like to express their gratitude for your enthusiastic support of their Kickstarter campaign. Unfortunately, Dirt Road Radio fell short of their funding goal. However, they're still committed to telling a better story about rural America. So they're going to keep moving forward and relaunch a campaign in the coming months. The response to everything they've created up to this point has been extremely encouraging and everyone can see right away how it meets an important need in our communities. You can sign up for the Dirt Road Radio newsletter by going to dirtroadradio.com and click on the newsletter link at the top of the homepage. Today we're talking with Heather Fleming, Amber Benge, and Ken Sussman from the Missouri Equity Education Partnership, or MOEP. The Missouri Equity Education Partnership is a grassroots nonprofit organization that promotes an equitable community by supporting anti-bias and anti-racist approaches to education. MOEP believes that diversity and equity education belongs in our schools as much as math, science, and the learning arts, or the language arts, I should say. It's important to recognize that this concept is not about shame and blame, but about embracing different perspectives, backgrounds, and stories that deserve to be told. We live in a diverse world and students need to learn how to engage within it. They believe that equity education empowers teachers and students to learn accurate history as well as gain skills needed to engage with people from different experiences and backgrounds. Now, this is quite the challenge in today's polarized society. MOEP actively counters detrimental misconceptions that tarnish the reputation of Missouri's teachers and efforts toward diversity, equity, and inclusion. MOEP adamantly argues against the misrepresentation of equity work as being synonymous with critical race theory, or CRT, an advanced academic concept typically studied in higher education, not in the K-12 classrooms. The organization emphasizes that CRT is not taught in Missouri classrooms and and it should not be conflated with diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. MOEP claims that their adversaries deliberately merge these, these distinct concepts in an attempt to criticize ideologies they oppose and promote the idea of, quote, school choice. MOEP is committed to exposing these misleading tactics and will combat any legislation that could unintentionally suppress the curriculum, endanger the freedoms of speech of the teachers and students, or undermine local control. Now, since the spring of 2021, MOEP has been working to build a network of grassroots advocates across Missouri to raise their voices together at the state and local level in favor of equity education. Their work so far has included meeting with lawmakers, testifying at hearings, and hosting in-person and virtual events on the importance of equity. So joining us now to talk more about MOEP is Heather Fleming, the founder and director of MOEP, Amber Benge, the co-director, and Ken Sussman, special project team leader. So thank you all for joining us on Democracy on the Move today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Hello, hello. All right. So, um, 
I said a lot about MoEP in the introduction, but uh, Heather, can you tell us a bit more about how the motivation behind MoEP got, how it all got started and uh, where is MoEP going these days? Yeah, so we started uh, MoEP at the end of April um, 2021 in response to the initial slate of um, anti-equity, specifically anti-CRT bills that began uh, to be filed. And it started just initially as a discussion group, you know, let's talk about what we're going to do to respond to this. Um, And we didn't realize at the time that we were building um, a movement. And so Amber has been there from the beginning. Uh, Ken has been there from the beginning. Um, And there's a lot of people that have been there and supported us from the very beginning. And we just continue to, to grow and to build. It initially was built around anti-CRT laws, but it now is inclusive of any laws that threaten equity in our state. Um, And so this year that has included um, anti-trans bills, anti, you know, bills against libraries um, and and anything that would negatively impact our schools uh, and universities. And we just go down the line, like there's been bills filed all over because now it's not only anti-CRT, it's anti-DEI, it's anti-trans, anti-LGBTQ, anti-liberty and, and um, freedom to, to learn and to grow and to experience and, and build um, diverse communities that really um, are inclusive of all. So. That is how Moeek came to be, just a group of passionate people who said, no, not in our state. Yeah, <clears throat> it seems like anti-everything these days. It, it just, uh, <laughs> it, nobody's really saying what they're for, right? Everything's, everybody's against something. Right. But that's sort of like the way that our that our uh, political system seems to run. You're not running for a candidate, you're running against another candidate. So, exactly. Um, so, uh, Ken, can you tell us a little bit more about what your job is as special project team leader at MOE? Yeah, sure. So I think I, I think a quick way to start this would be explain how I got involved in the first place, uh, which was in December. Yes, in December of twenty one, uh, Heather, who I know we uh, we both taught in the same district for a long time, got to know each other through that. Um, she called me and said, "Hey." We're looking to get a, you know, a part of this group. We're looking to get um, some people together to look at school board candidates and see what they're going to do, see where they stand on equity issues. And I think it would be great if you could be a part of this call because I think you have some some insight that might be useful. I said I'd love to be a part of the call, and she said, "Great, it's just one phone call." It was not just one phone call, but that's okay. Um, so I, I joined and it, it made a lot of sense to me. It was a group of highly dedicated people interested in making sure that school board candidates statewide, as much as possible, were going to fight for what's right for our kids and not bring this politics of negativity into the schools. And so I kind of hitched my wagon in right there. So essentially what, what I do is I kind of lead our, our, our candidate scorecard processes, I guess. So whenever the school board elections come around, and we also did um, statewide midterm elections this year as well, but primarily school board, I will work with a group of people to come up with a survey and to come up with a process. And we go through and we score 
as many candidates as we possibly can across as many districts as we possibly can and say, hey, these are the candidates. If you're looking for equity, if you want our kids to learn in diverse and equitable ways, these are the candidates you should vote for if you live in this school district. We, we approve and endorse these candidates. And so it's from the figuring out what the districts are all the way to like advertising through Facebook or, or posting, um, I sort of lead that process. So that's, that's my main, my main role. Okay. And Amber, as co-director, what are your responsibilities and how did you get involved? Well, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> it started with one phone call, I'll bet too. <laughs> well, okay. That's how I get all of them, Dan. Just one phone call. <laughs> and next thing I know, they're hooked. <laughs> so, Heather and I met in 20, Heather, was it 2017, 18? 2018. 2018. Um, she was the lead organizer for the Women's March in St. Louis, and I volunteered to be a part of that. I've um, done some uh, marches prior, and um, I did the marshalling, which is kind of leading how the uh, march runs and the safety aspects. And um, I came in as a volunteer, and Heather put me to work and we've been friends ever since. She had this nonprofit uh, in purpose educational services. I served as her board president for that. Um, that was a diversity, equity and inclusion um, training and um, awareness. Uh, they did equity audits as well. I am also a former teacher. And then as we are starting to see these laws come through, Heather's got this group together. We start talking about it. And I think it just kind of organically formed to what it is right now. Uh, my background is not only am I a teacher, but I'm also a community organizer. I've organized many rallies and marches, and I also have a certification in human rights consulting, and I'm working on my doctorate right now in organizational leadership with an emphasis in social justice. So I do all of the little background organizational work that makes that helps us run. Okay, and is uh, is MoEP and this is for you, Amber, because you probably know more about this. But is uh, well, I may know more about it, but maybe this is your specialty. <laughs> uh, MoEP is a five hundred one c three organization nonprofit. It is both a five hundred one c three and a five hundred one c four. Um, all of our 501c4 work is MOEP Action, and that's where we do the scorecards and we are able to be more involved in the process and the politics that are happening around us. And the C3 is more educational and um, they are uh, more of issue-based. So they're advocates for issues. And while we will, you know, we can on the C4 side can go and target politicians and ask the tough questions. Yeah. Yeah, there's some rules that govern C3 and C4. I learned that recently as well. So as a C3 organization, um, you can't get too involved in talking with politicians and such from what I understand. So you have to create a C4. But um, that's the extent of my legal knowledge right there. So I'm not going to go any further and make a fool of myself. Um, so Heather, you and I, we talked, the last time we talked, when you were just getting started, it seemed like back in December of 2021, and um, you were fighting the battle of DEI versus CRT. That's diversity, equity, and inclusion versus um, versus um, um, 
yeah, CRT, critical, yeah. Yeah. You know, the thing is, I'm an engineer, and every time I say CRT, I keep thinking cathode ray tube, which is the old TV tubes we used to use. I'm showing my my age, you know, but critical race theory. I have to re-educate myself right now. Um, But anyways, you know, CRT at that point was being used as a battering ram to undermine your efforts to promote equity in education. And the times have changed somewhat because now, you know, people are actually acknowledging the term DEI. Uh, but they're kind of conflating it together with CRT, so I'm not sure that that, that particular advance in progress was worth it. Uh, they've been thrown together in a campaign to basically destroy public education as we know it. Um, yeah. Now, there are a lot of moving parts in this struggle here. Can you bring us up to date on what's going on in terms of the attack on our teachers and the way in which DEI is being used as a weapon? Yeah. So here's something that you know, to set up from the very beginning. Um, Whether they call it DEI or CRT, they don't actually um, have a clear definition or understanding of what those are, Um, or actually more, I would say, they're depending on the people um, that support them to not have a clear understanding of what those are so that they can perpetuate the the misconceptions that this is somehow harmful um, to white children, that this is somehow detrimental to academic outcomes, et cetera. What all three of us on this call, um, you know, here as your guests know as educators is that not only is DEI essential um, to education, if you want success, if you are really trying to raise test scores or anything like that, you need diversity, equity, and inclusion because it calls for educators to get past biases, um, their own personal biases in order to best educate students. It calls for, um, for teachers to implement strategies that really help all of their kids Um, to succeed, to see themselves in the curriculum, uh, to feel uh, comfortable in a a learning environment. The reality is that kids don't learn in unsafe spaces. And so what they're they're actually advocating for is for black and brown children, children that are in any way other. So LGBTQ children, um, black and brown children, uh, you know, non-Christian students to have to try to learn in unsafe environments, knowing that they cannot. Um, And what will that do? Well, what it will do partially is that it will then create this self-fulfilling prophecy about the failures of schools, which will then lead to, you know, them making a case for privatization of schools, for removing resources out of schools, which is going to create further inequity and disparities. And so we have a lot of, not only students, but but citizens that fall into any category of other um, under attack through our systems, through our, our legislature and the laws that they're creating. Um, Amber, Ken, do you want to add anything to that? I know you have some good insight. I, I, I do. Um, and it's something that I've been sort of thinking through a lot lately. Um, I don't know if I've ever really articulated it. So, you know, it's... What's missed in this conversation is that the push against DEI, CRT, whatever, we're, whatever, whatever the current boogeyman is, is that that push is self, it's against the best interests of the people making the argument itself, and they don't necessarily realize it, right? We have a system where 
schools are based on property and property is based on schools, right? Where it all ties together. And we all want better schools. And so if we wanna improve schools, we need to start getting down to the level of, well, how can we help individuals? And that's the work in many ways of equity. Um, you know, if you live in a so-called top level school district, you can look at the data and you can see that it's top level for a lot of groups, but not for all the groups. Well, let's improve our school district. Well, how do we do that? Well, what can we do to help these students improve? That's equity work. And by pushing against it, people are actively pushing against their own interests. And they're doing it because they've been riled up or because they view it as a threat. You know, it's that cultural Marxism is like a 60 or 70 year old term. It was used against desegregation too. <laughs> um, that's, and that's not an accident, right? It's kind of the same set of arguments that, oh, they, they need more rights than us. No, 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 we're looking for, we're looking for the same. We want everyone to have the opportunity to learn with everyone to have the opportunity to set a counter, right? It's the same set of arguments being used and it's, it's counterproductive in all settings unless you're looking at it from a power point of view. I also wanna add that um, as I'm doing my dissertation, I'm doing my dissertation on guiding equity in the classroom and it's a research study on how to provide equity um, in the light in lieu of the new legislations and proposed legislations um, across the US and Missouri. Um, and through my research and all of the peer reviewed information that I read, I see over and over and over again that there is consistency among you have to address microaggressions and implicit biases within the classroom. You have to create a sense of belonging. You have to establish equitable um, uh, resources so you can have equitable outcomes. And I think that we are listening to these culture wars because we have people who feel like equity is a pie and that if you give some, they're gonna lose this, but no, well, that's not what it is. But what it is is making sure and ensuring that we are all have the accessibility we all have the accessibility to have resources for the things that we need in order to be as successful as we can possibly can be given the circumstances in our environment. And I think that they're trying to remove these things from schools to create these inequitable and these um, uh, in, uh, unequal outcomes because of the push for school choice and the voucher system and because people stand to make an incredible amount of money off of it. And yeah. then they can impose their own agendas. I, I know, oh, go ahead, Ken. I was going to say, there's a book I read about a year, two years ago called um, Dream Hoarders. And it's about the long running, um, I don't know if ability is the right word, but pattern or trend of middle and upper middle and upper class, primarily whites, finding ways, quote unquote, colorblind to to control outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, we're gonna do schools by property tax. How convenient we already live in the good neighborhood. You should have bought a house in a better neighborhood. Sorry about that. Um, we're gonna have legacy admissions to college. No, 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 it's just because my dad went here. It's nothing, you know, it's, it's sorry your dad didn't go here. Um, it's that sort of idea that, that those who have can control, can gatekeep. And so by trying to knock down the gates, 
it feels like there's an attack when in reality the gates shouldn't have been there in the you're absolutely right. In fact, this actually dovetails into some other conversation I want to have. And it really, I want to talk about the attack on our schools. And it's, you know, public schools are under attack these days. It's not just Missouri. But over the past decade, we've seen numerous attempts to effectively defund schools in favor of redirecting that money toward private schools and home schools. And um, it's no secret that DEI is being used as a tool in this effort. And this all seems to me to be a smokescreen, in my view. There's a real drive to defund public schools because, I mean, let's let's face it, let's just follow the money. And, and mm-hmm. if we were to go with this assumption, which I think you guys agree with the assumption, I was um, have a little note in here to say, make sure they agree with this assumption. Um, <laughs> but uh, so if we go with this assumption, um, then wouldn't it appear that fighting over DEI or CRT or drag shows or grooming or whatever really isn't addressing the core problem? The core problem, as I said, is follow the money. And Absolutely. so, yeah, so, so it seems like we're fighting the battles that divert us from the real war. And, um, so what do you have to say about that? Now let's start with, um, let's start with you, Heather. Let's see what you have to say about that. That is absolutely true. And so, um, I, um, have worked with a few national organizations and one um, individual that I work with did an entire mapping project in which they mapped the money behind this and it's coming from the same sources it's coming from the same sources so even as we see the uprise of these so-called grassroots movements like moms for liberty and um etc they're funded by the same people um and so you have the christopher rufos etc um you have like alec and um the heritage foundation and a number of these you know, far right wing conservative, um, so-called think tanks, et cetera, but they're, they're funds that are actually funding all of this. So you're correct. There's a lot of, like Amber said, there's a lot of money to be made by privatizing schools. But on top of that, what it does is, is that by privatizing these schools, the reality is, is that that's going to benefit a small percentage of wealthy, you know, children of wealthy, um, people, mm-hmm. but it's going to hurt everyone else, in particular, our um, rural community schools, because they don't have a private school that they can send um, people to. And, and many of these rural communities here in Missouri are already at four day school weeks. Yeah, like 25 so percent of a, them, I believe. Yeah, exactly. So that there's already like here's uh, the suppression of um, of education. And here is a a loss of opportunity to make sure that the citizens of Missouri are well educated. Well, there's there's, you know, money behind that, too, because what happens when you have people that are undereducated, they are more likely to to select, um, you know, low and low paying jobs, factory based jobs. You know, there's some factory jobs that pay really well. But in general, they're able they they are creating this. intentional lower class because they are intentionally creating an undereducated um, um, citizenry. And then we also have to think in terms of the military. A lot of people who are, are um, you know, can't afford to go to school, are living in cycles of poverty, et cetera, they're more likely to choose opportunities such as um, the, going into the military uh, in order to help pay for college 
or, or whatever it may be in order to have some type of career opportunity. And so that's what's happening. It's, 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 a, it's a vicious cycle that ends up leading to a lot of people who are not educated and by not being educated, um, have fewer choices and fewer opportunities. And a lot of those opportunities lead to exploitation by um, the rich and the, the powerful. And I would argue that it's no surprise, it's not a coincidence that this has come both on the heels of and in tandem with a long-term attack on unions. Um, the teachers union has always been a, a punching bag of this type of movement. Um, and I would, you know, not to sound conspiratorial, but like these come from the same place, this idea that, well, what is it that they're getting that we're not? We have to we have to defund this. Um, yeah. I would, can I also add um, when we were talking about if we want a little bit of lesson of CRT, I'm about to give it to you. So, <laughs> 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 so when you start looking historically on why the voucher system and the school choice thing um, is existing and it's still going, it is because of Brown versus Board of Education. We have seen this happen. Vouchers were introduced during Brown v. Board after that ruling, because what we have is that you have this group subset of people in the United States. The segregation want, academies. Huh? I'm sorry? The segregation academies. Yes. So you want them, they want to um, remain segregated. And what today's, virtually what today's voucher systems are doing and the proposals for them and the charter school movement is to remove people from the classroom and put them in silos, silos where they feel like they should be, and I'm putting that in air quotes, and places where, and I'm putting that in air quotes, they want to be. So if you think about where our charter schools are in Missouri, um, all of our charter schools are in black and brown neighborhoods. That's in your KCMO, that is in your St. Louis, um, and what you're seeing is that as you remove the funding from the public schools and you're putting those into those charter situations, those charters have no accountability, they do not have the same accountability as a public school. So as that happens, you have charters that start drifting, they start maybe not taking students that are um, maybe disadvantaged intellectually or um, physically. And they would say, well, we don't have the services to accommodate them. So now they're in the public school and this brand new shiny charter school exists. Well, as they grift and they take money and they don't have the same accountability standards, that school will fail. If you look and statistically, I think it's like, 80% of the charter schools in the state, and don't get me wrong, I, I don't have the statistic in my face, but please look it up. Um, but such a high percentage of them fail. And what it does is that it now creates this funding hole within the community. And those are predominantly your black and brown communities where you have now this funding gap of this public of the public education system. Because now that school is either closed or they're so terribly underfunded, they don't have the technology, the books, the curriculum, the teachers, the pay, the support, the resources, they don't have any of it anymore because that was given to that charter system within that school district. So now that charter closes and where does the kids go? There's nowhere for them to, 
go. They go back to public school. Now that public school's underfunded, people have left because the public school had kept falling, 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 falling. And because of the funding issues, so people start moving out of the neighborhood, creates an incredibly, increases that funding gap because schools are funded inequitably in this state due to um, property taxes and whatever that his that we can go down a whole historical thing with that too and um <laughs> but but so when you're, you're then you have these people trying to justify and they keep justifying it now they're justifying it with the religious aspect they're now justifying it saying that people are indoctrinating and grooming but all of this is in this the whole grand scheme of it it's this um this uh, this cultural society that was created on and based on uh, racism, and it has been here, and it, it it keeps perpetuating, but it just keeps changing shape. And we, if we don't stand up against it, then we're complicit, and we keep justifying it for it to happen. And in the meantime, we are not. We're asking why people are not being successful, or we're asking why um, rural communities are have businesses moving and their schools aren't as good as a Ladue High School or a um, high school in Kansas City. And we start looking at the funding and we look at this, the system problems and the same problems that created the inequities in black and brown communities, are the same systems that create them in poor white communities. It's the same, it's the same all around and they want the division and they want that cultural divide. So we don't catch on to one another. And then because once we form together, we form a movement and then we can get them out of power. Yeah, sorry, and that's what, myself and, so <laughs> and that's what you know. The the perspective that Moe comes from is is having that historical understanding, being able to talk to people about here's how it's created. But I think that in advocating for you know the things that we advocate for, it's letting people know that you know, um, as Amber said, here are the the things that create it. Um, these problems, they're being replicated. And the irony is that that's what CRT talks about, is the yeah. fact that we have systems um, and processes in place that makes it so easy to replicate racist and um, inequities throughout the system. But those things are, are also negatively impact um, rural communities, you know, poor, um, poor communities like in the boot hill. You're as you're as um, disadvantaged at this point as people in other parts of the state, maybe in urban centers in the state, because now the problem that we need to deal with from an equity perspective is poverty. And how do we address the poverty, socioeconomic status, and lifting people out of poverty? So it, it's a um, it's a vicious cycle, and it's one where the people that are trying to convince us now that the problem is black and brown people are the same people who are benefiting from the continuation of these inequities. And there's so much to unpack in, in what everybody's saying here. One of the things I want to observe and, and to put some real numbers to it is that uh, the uh, Missouri, I think it was fiscal year 2021, their budget for education, a total budget for education was $8.53 billion, with a B, $8.53 billion. So you take a big bag of money, you put it on the table, and there's going to be a lot of people that are, that are going to be grabbing for it. And and Amber, you talked about vouchers. 
What do you think about this? I, I, I didn't know if this is true or not. I, I got in a conversation with someone about the fact that if the government um, government uh, funds a, a public school, there are certain encumbrances upon that school that they have to teach certain subjects and they have, the students have to pass certain tests. And if any of that public funding goes into a religious school, uh, the religious school also has to rise to the occasion and teach certain subjects and have certain grade point averages on certain tests and so on. But the voucher system, I've been told, kind of gets around this thing because if you give the parents the vouchers, the vouchers can be spent and then there's no traceability in terms of where that money goes. If it goes to a religious school, the religious school doesn't have to uh, uh, conform to the uh, rules that the government sets aside. Is, is that just a conspiracy theory or is that actually, Do you, can you guys sort of... That- comment on that that is how i understand it yeah. um, i will admit i have not dug into the law and even if i had i'm not a lawyer so but from what i understand that is that is correct um, and it creates an undue burden on removing money from schools that have accountability standards and placing them in schools that do not have accountability standards and also from a double point um, as someone who's a member of a religious minority there aren't that many schools that I would be interested in sending my kids to. So these vouchers might technically be available to me, but as a Jewish person, I'm not interested in sending my kids to a Jesuit high school, for instance. Might it be a great school? Sure, absolutely. But those opportunities aren't even available for some. And it's a little bit off topic, but I want to include that. I don't think it's off topic. I think that that is very relevant. you know, and that ends up being the issue is that, yes, so we have this voucher system in place that is supposedly open to everyone, but say, say like, for instance, even if we did choose to send our kids to the local Jesuit school, that $6,000 voucher doesn't um, cover a year of tuition at that school. So now it's still only available to those people who can afford to pay for the rest of it. Um, and then again, it yes, it's open to people that are in rural communities, but where are they going to use it? And so here, money is being taken out of the pot, really, for people who can already afford to pay the tuition at this these schools, um, and and leaving a deficit for the public schools that other people can um, have no choice but to go to, but to send their children to. And when we talk about fairness, that's not fair. That's not equitable. And and in the end, that's why there's been such an attack on equity because these schemes can't work. These types of things can't work if people have a clear understanding of just how they will work. And if they have their clear understanding of what is afforded to us uh, for basic human rights in the United States. And um, as I was getting my um, consulting certification for uh, in human rights, um, it was a right to have a, access to a free public education. That is a basic human right of the United States of America. And so what you're seeing is that when the, the argument is, these are my tax dollars, the argument for vouchers, these are my tax dollars, and I can spend my tax dollars the way I want. Sure. Um, but that those tax dollars are for the basic rights of a free public education, those allocated dollars. 
that means that if that charter school fails or if that private school fails, you still get to go to school for free. You have a choice to pay more, but you have the right to have the free education and your tax dollars ensure that right and ensure it no matter if you are a wealthy business owner and you lose your business and now you can't pay for the private school or pay for the voucher difference. Well, now you get to go to a free public school and you should want to ensure that that school that your kid goes to is incredible and they should want to ensure that the tax dollars are being spent in ways that offers these incredible resources to make Missouri children and students some of the best in the United States. And what we're seeing is that we have people who are so greedy and they are so self-absorbed that they're not looking outward to their community and looking outward to what the future might hold for themselves or their neighbors. So the voucher system is just for me, and I, not just for me, just in general, a political grift to take money out of the big pot, like you were saying, Dan, because there's a lot of billions of dollars on the table in every state. And somebody's going to get their their hand in that in that honey pot. I also have this comeback when somebody says something like, "It's my money. I should be able to spend the the uh, my child's education money however I want." And I say, "Well, let's apply that to roads, okay? So let's not repair the road in front of your house because how much do you pay in 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 property taxes? That's not enough to get a whole crew of people out there to repair the road right in front of your house. So let's let that road go away." Or let's, let's apply it to soldiers that go into the army. Hey, it's my money that's paying for this military. I want soldiers to protect my house, you know. And you know, it's it's just it's a ridiculous argument on the face of it. And uh, it you know, the, the thing about public education is that uh, if you go back in the history of where it all began, way back in the early 1800s, it, some of the founding fathers were actually involved in the concept of public education because. They were seeing the situation arise where people were, were being sent to individual schools and you ended up with this sort of incongruous or, or inconsistent um, education standard being employed. And public education, I think, is the number one reason why our country has been able to rise above and beyond any other country in terms of innovation, technology, uh, quality of life. Uh, sure, some other countries are catching up with us now because they've caught on to a really good idea, right? That that education is the key to everything. So you know, to want to go back to the you know to the pre eighteen hundreds model of things, which is really what a lot of people are advocating for, um, we're just gonna we're gonna fall behind as a nation. We're just gonna fall behind. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that. Go ahead. I was gonna just sorry, Ken, but just, I'm gonna say one hundred percent on that is that if you look at Finland and their school model and how they treat their public school system. There's no private schools in Finland. There is no charter schools in Finland. And it said, they say that no matter what community you are in and live in, no matter if it's the richest or the poorest, your education is exactly the same. You get fed the same, you have the same resources, you have the same everything. And then you get to go to school with people who are different and diverse. And because of that, their school system is runs between number one and number two in the world. And there's no reason why America, one of the best nations on this planet, can't model and take say, be humble enough to say what we're doing isn't working 
let's look outside and see what is working in other countries. Oh, they, Finland has a great public school system and they're thriving. We should be able to do the same. It's the happiest country in the world. Uh, what I was going to say, you don't even necessarily, I, I'm not, I, I want to say, I am not opposed to private schools. If you want to send your kid to a private school, be my guest. That is wonderful. I don't want to pay for your kid to go to private school. Um, but if you look back at the time when some people would claim like, ah, the good old days in America, you know, the 50s and 60s, obviously that's a select group of people. But like that was a time of immense public investment in schools, in roads, in sciences. Yes, we were spending an unbelievable amount of money on the military and so on. But like, if you look around St. Louis in particular, but really the country in general, look at how many schools were built in the 50s and 60s and even into the 70s, right? Oh, it, you know, this is when the boomers were growing up and the, the country recognized, hey, we got a lot of kids. We should educate them. Let's build a school and hire a bunch of teachers. And we did that. And so now we've moved on and all of a sudden it becomes, well, no, these are my tax dollars. Yeah, they were theoretically your tax dollars in 1955 also. And we realized we need another school. So we built one, you know, and those are the so-called golden era, according to some, shall we say. Um, yeah. You know, here's the, here's the, the reality is that um, all of those people were fine with investing in it until the demand came that our public, our, our, our social contracts in America include more people. And so this now is about, okay, um, we don't wanna uphold the social contract because we don't want certain people included within it. And what our legislature is showing us is honestly every year it's a list of who they don't want included in the social contract. And so this year, the Missouri legislature um, let us know that it's black and brown people, that it's trans people, LGBTQ people, um, that it is, um, um, you know, uh, people who support those people too. Um, that it is, is it is Muslim people and, and people that are are non-Christian. Um, those are the folks that they don't want as part of the social contract. And so, who does that leave? It leaves white Christian. Um, right. You know. Yeah, uh, well, that's who it you. leaves. <clears throat> yeah, and and at the top of the hour, we talked about anti this and anti that. I mean, that's I think you're getting to the root of it right there. It's it's really. Um, a movement that's that has this thin veil, this thin facade of being anti-LGBTQ or being anti-DEI, when the real thing, when you pull back that that veil, uh, what's revealed underneath is is racism, classism. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think I think both of them kind of belong in the same category insofar as this discussion is concerned, because. You know, you, you talked about, uh, I think it was uh, Ken, you talked about having a permanent underclass. Same sort of thing. And that's that's not necessarily a racist concept, but it is the development of a permanent underclass that, um, you know, I think is, is definitely a conscious decision among a lot of people in this country. And this veil, I, I want to get to talk about this veil a little bit more because I read a very interesting article this morning. It was in the Springfield News Leader, and it, it discusses 
the frustration that folks in Springfield have had in trying to convince the Springfield School Board to adopt a statement of support for their LGBTQ students and employees. And so far, the school board has refused, even though the city council, as you may or may not know, uh, embraced LGBTQ. And, um, and so one of the more popular arguments against this idea of embracing LGBTQ came from a man called Calvin Morrow, who spoke on behalf of the concerned pastors of the greater Springfield area. And his argument went like this. I'll just quote him right here. He said, quote, This resolution forces those who do not agree into a position of either support or that of an adversary and can only serve as a political tool to divide the people, which this school board is not tasked with. If this body formally affirms members of the LGBTQ community, then those outside of it are unaffirmed. He goes on to say, quote, the the resolution is fundamentally unfair because all of the citizens are not considered. This resolution would alienate and marginalize all who may disagree with the lifestyle of the LGBTQ community, which may be the majority. Now, to me, there's at least two argumentative fallacies in his, arg- in his statement. First, he presents this false dilemma by implying that there are only two alternatives. That is, if one group is affirmed, it automatically means that those outside that group are unaffirmed, which is not true. Uh, not. He also commits what I would call a slippery slope argument by saying that affirming the LGBTQ community will inevitably lead to the alienation and marginalization of those who may disagree with their lifestyle. So the bottom line, in my opinion, is he's depending a lot on trickery to weave fear into his argument, the fear of losing out. And this is, and this gets right back to you know white Christian nationalism, uh, in a sense, because the country, uh, you know, was majority white Christian. Uh, I think it still is to some degree, but um, that is, you know, as as diversity increases and as more immigrants come in, that's no longer going to be the case. So, um, you know, they, they again, they put this thin veil around it and say, they talk about meritocracy. They talk about, you know, um, about uh, about being, um, not being racist. And they, 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 they turn around and call, you know, people who are progressive, they call them the racists. Um <laughs> And this is all, you know, it's all a very, it, it depends on trickery of argumentative fallacies. Um, do you guys see this happening as well? Let's start with um, with Ken. How about, how about you? Oh, my God. Yeah, all the time. Um, I mean, on one hand, just to be a little bit glib about it, like, if I say I like George Carlin, that doesn't mean I also don't like Richard Pryor. Like, you can agree with two things at the same time. Um, but it, it's, it's disingenuous. It's 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 intentionally spreading falsehoods. Um, so the belief is that if the school board supports one group of kids, it's not supporting all group of kids. So that's that school district is going to fail because they are simply not going to accept that some kids need different things than other kids. And I would say, as someone who's, you know, got 15, 16 years of education under my belt as a professional. And uh, you have know, got kids in the school system. If I, if, I thought, if I found out that my school district was debating whether or not to support certain kids, I would be outraged, right? I would be beside myself, whether those are my kids or not. I would want to know that my school district supports every single kid in every single building. And if they're not, I would demand answers. And that doesn't matter if I'm talking about, you know, my, my school district is majority white, majority Christian. 
I expect that my school district is going to support white Christian kids too, and LGBTQ and Jewish and black and down the line. And some groups, there is some groups, the statement of support is necessary because of those very, those very forces that are coming out and saying it's against my whatever, right? Um, I'm, I'm assuming that that school district still is off for Christmas. So I feel like they are taking that into account, right? Like, it's just, it makes me very upset the idea that a school district would not support a group of kids because other people would feel bad about it, right? That That's where I stick with it. It's, it's disingenuous. It's, it's professional negligence on the part of a school district to not support a group of kids. And it's it's basically, it's just falsehood built on falsehood. This idea that, well, if we support gay kids, what about those of us who don't believe in gay kids? Well, guess what? It doesn't matter if you believe in them. They're here. They're learning. Deal well, with it. Yeah, We'd it's, like to support them. Yeah. It's, it's a thing like Black Lives Matter, right? Um, people say, well, White Lives Matter too. Well, there is nobody in the Black Lives Matter movement that I'm aware of that ever said white lives do not matter, right? It's it's that just hasn't... it's just it's a statement of inclusion. It's it's a it's a it's a big ask to say we're part of this society too, you know. Right. And it yeah, doesn't mean you're not the part. The idea of, of white lives mattering has never been an issue in the United States. That has been true since it was built. We would like to also have other lives be included in that. So yeah. White lives do matter, but that's not the problem at the moment. We need to get black lives to matter the same way. Yes, I agree. The lack of support for um, LGBT students in the district that you're, you're speaking of, it's, it also perpetuates the, uh, the feelings that are not, I don't know feelings is the wrong way, but it perpetuates the thoughts of racism because all of this is also rooted into the same thing, right? If you're saying that we can't say a statement of support for this group because this group feels bad, well, then you're starting to start looking at these little ticks away of equality. You're looking at these ticks away of what does it mean? Like, who's the dominant power? Who gets to say that their feelings are hurt? Because what about the other side that pays taxes in the district and has kids there, they're supporting the right for children to be loved and accepted and find a sense of belonging in an environment that they spend eight hours a day in. And so then you start watching the tick tick away, but then also roots down to, okay, so now we've done that to um, a marginalized uh, group that is um, that deals with sexual and um, physical orientation. Well, well, what about race? What about then? So can we not say that we have to have equal things for um, Asian students or, or let's say Filipino students in your district? Um, you, you have the extra programs for them or you have the statement of inclusivity and equality for them, but now it makes the white folks feel bad. So do we get rid of that? I mean, it's just such a, it's such a illogical argument to make uh, and the fact that this person who is the leader of a school district, it's, it's despicable that this person is actually making the rules and laws for so many kids and so many community, community members there. Um, it saddens me. I think that a lot of people, you know, really need to realize it, it, 
everyone knows that Martin E. Muller poem, first they came for the Jews and I didn't say anything because I was not a Jew, right? But they don't seem to understand that that is what's happening here and now. And whenever we get to a point where we start naming groups and we allow groups to be specifically targeted, um, then what we're doing is, is we're starting a true slope towards denying rights for a lot of other groups as well. And eventually that will get to you. That will get to you. And so there's a lot of people that are like, well, you know, I voted for this person because they were going to, you know, stop um, the immigrants at the border. But we saw story after story after story uh, where it was people who said, well, yeah, I voted that way, but I didn't think they would come and take, you know, my favorite person at, at this restaurant or my favorite person um, at my job. Etc. because they think it's going to always be those people. But if we don't get to a point where we say, you know what, denying rights to any people is somehow denying rights to all people, then you're going to find yourself on the losing end of that one day too. And so there, there's a, a need for all of us to be concerned anytime we see these anti- um, bills, because any bill that removes rights eventually will be used that same um, process, which we, you know, this ties back into what we were saying earlier, that same process will then be used to somehow deny you your rights in favor of um, maintaining the rights and um, full citizenry of the people in power. And if those people in power don't look like you, don't think like you, et cetera, then eventually it will be your turn for, for some of your rights to be infringed upon. I would argue that at the end of all, at the base of all this comes back to what Heather said a few minutes ago about who has access to the social contract and who does not. And that's what this comes down to is it's, does a country based in terms of its ideals on equality and liberty under the law, mean it or not? Is everyone included in that social contract or not? And that's, I think Heather pinned it dead to right with that. It's who who's a part of this and who who's not. Yeah. Well, you, you consider where we came from as a nation. I mean, the word slavery, um, I understand is not in the constitution. Um, well, not anymore. I, it might've been at one point when it scratched out, but. But you know, the, the I guess what I'm trying, what I'm getting at is that our society was built as a very apartheid sort of society from the very beginning. Right. You had to be a landowner. You had to be white. You had to be um, most states. You had to be a man. Some states allowed you to be a woman, um, and then the women's right to vote was taken away at one at one point. And so to where we are right now. So we just you know it's not like you can just flip a switch and then suddenly things are equal anymore. So there's this realization that there's a lot of work to do and that work is not over and that work and that struggle continues. And what depresses me these days is that people start going backwards. You know, they, 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 uh, the, you know, when I say people, I mean the people in power that want to hang on to that power and are afraid of losing it and are, have been scared out of their skin about losing that power. Um, oftentimes vote against their own long-term best interests because they've been convinced that, um, that, the nation is falling. The nation's coming apart, and you know the only way to rescue it is to begin um, delineating people along different uh, lines. And you know, like I say, it's not necessarily 
so much racist anymore. I, well, I think it is still largely racist, but it's just more classist as well. So those that have a lot, whose dads went to the certain college, they get to go to that college. Those who have a lot of money get to send their kids to the special schools. And now they could take money out of the public schools to do it. It's just going to further divide the nation. And, um, you know, we're just going backwards, back to the days of right after the Constitution, where, you know, there was uh, essentially an apartheid nation. I, I would disagree only in the idea that it's it's less racist or I know that wasn't exactly what you said. I would argue that over the course of 250 years, we've built a society where class can stand in for race very often. Mm -hmm. And yes. so it yes. enables a colorblindness to achieve the same thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was going to point out when we look at the idea of impact versus intent. Um, the, the biggest thing that these people are worried about and what they activate is um, the intention of causing a, a skewed impact on specific communities, okay? But what ended up, ends up happening is that then the communities um, that they got to support them end up being impacted as well. And so there is a socioeconomic um, aspect, but the way that they activate that ends up being through racism and oppression. Um, mm -hmm. and, and what we have found, unfortunately, over the last few years is that racism, we could argue, is a core American value, even even as much as, if not more, than than the ideals of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, the ideas of, you know, respect for our, our democracy and for our freedoms. Um, because what we see is that there are people who are willing to barter those ideals if it will negatively impact the groups that they don't like. Mm -hmm. um, and that's been that's been an unfortunate realization, but that's how they've gotten they've garnered support for a lot of this. Is hey, yeah. We know that this will take away rights um, that we say that we value, but it, it's only going to take it away from those people, not these people. Yeah. Um, Good point. May so I, we have to be aware of that. May yeah. I add also is that we also have to be, in order to break cycles of poverty and in order to break um, the cycles where, or, or, or to build, rebuild communities, we have to learn about our past, what's created it, why we are in the positions we are. And like I was saying earlier, the same political systems, the same systems are, work against both black people, white people, Asian people, they work against them. And the othering that comes, the um, treating another race bad comes because you have people who are in power that don't want to lose it. So what they're doing is, even though that crime is these, is worse in Springfield than it is in St. Louis, statistically, if you look at it, but they use St. Louis, right? Because um, St. Louis has a 44.3% African-American population. So they're going to use that. Um, yeah. But they don't want to address that Springfield, who does have a larger white population, um, has higher crime rates. They don't want to, they want to talk about drugs and crime and guns in 
black communities in Kansas City and St. Louis, but they're not addressing that in Farmington, Missouri, in the middle of nowhere in a, in a 25,000 person town, right? So they're, it's, but they're still the same things. There's still schooling and funding issues. There is drug issues. There are uh, incarceration issues, poverty issues. But here's the thing is they can other a race. They say, you know what? Look at them. At least you're not like them. And so what it starts doing is it, it builds this, this feeling of, okay, yeah, my life is bad, but I'm not, I'm not like that bad. But you're, mm -hmm. but no, there, there's nothing bad here. What you have is a whole bunch of people that pitted you against one another because they know that if you came together, you would start getting them out of power and start solving some of these problems and having, because you have commonality. You know, race is something we were born with. Uh, we can't remove it from us, but what we can do is learn from the cultures and, and things that exist within that race, learn from it, and then appreciate that and use that to our advantage to come together and make these incredible changes that are possible um, if you have unity. Uh, and I'm going to add one more point is, um, I don't know if you've ever read the story of how the word red, redneck became a derogatory term in Appalachia. And that was because of um, these miners would, and coal miners would use the, the red bandanas around their neck and they were sweaty and all that stuff. But what they saw is that there was a, a, a labor revolt and black people and white people started banding together. And they were all of these the miners that wore these red bandanas and they were white people and black people wearing them. And how they ended up dividing folks was saying that he was using the word redneck as derogatory means you were with the black people, you were not with white people. And look at you turning against your race, they're tricking you. And it was such a mind, it was such a, a you know, for lack of a better word, it was such a, it, it was such a confusing thing for folks and it was, it was perpetuated on purpose. So to make that division so that people didn't get paid more, they weren't traded equally. Because once they started the unity between the black people and white people in Appalachia, they knew that their power was about to be removed. So what they did, they were they othered, they used the term redneck as a derogatory term. And still to this day, you have people in Appalachia and throughout the South that are against labor unions, and they use redneck as a derogatory term. Wow. I didn't realize that. That is, you know, I mean, redneck is used such, it was such loose, you know, so loosely today that, you know, I, <clears throat> I mean, you know, I just never, never realized where it came from, but it was actually, what you're saying was intentionally used because they couldn't differentiate the other because the other, in air quotes here, were both black and white people, but there was one commonality they had, and that was they wore these red bandanas around their neck. And so yeah. that became the othering of them, huh? That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So that, you have to learn this history and you have to learn what's happening and how the system has been played against all races. And it's the division that is here purposefully to other and to create and maintain power structures. And that's what we have to start realizing. And that's what's scary for folks is because once they realize that they have been involved in these power structures for so long and they've perpetuated some of the beliefs and they have hurt others and they have caused some harm in some ways, unintentionally sometimes and intentionally other times, that it's so uncomfortable they can't sit in that. 
But what they should do is sit in that because we cannot create change without without being uncomfortable first. Yeah. Get out of your comfort zone. Heather. (laughs) That's very good. I I like that. You know, I've I violated one of my own principles right now. I've allowed this conversation to go on for more than an hour. And I told you guys, let's keep it to an hour. But uh, this is so fascinating that um, I don't want to stop. But I guess we better wrap this up pretty soon. Um, I want to, uh, this, this do a call to action right here. Uh, people that are interested in MOEP, uh, how can they learn more about it and get involved? Um, Heather? Yes, they can, they can visit our website, um, www.missouriequity.com, spell out Missouri. Um, they can email at info at missouriequity.com and say, Hey, I want to get involved and we will make sure that you're involved. Follow us on all social media. Um, right now, we are really looking for um, uh, district captains, people that are willing to step up and take some leadership within their district. We provide all the training that they need in order to be um, confident leaders within their district and to be able to organize parents around um, you know, saving our, our public schools. Um, we have our political action and legal team. We have our special projects team that, led by Ken. Um, we have coming up an, an equity fair on September 9th. We'll be releasing more details about that soon. Um, so there's lots of ways that people can get involved. And, and whether you have five minutes um, a week or five hours a week, um, we can use it. So please get in touch. Please sign up. Um, please join us. Thank you very much, uh, Heather Heather Fleming. Uh, thank you. And also Amber Benj and... Ken Sussman, thank you for joining us today on Democracy on the Move. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its original promise of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead. We hope you'll tune in again next week. <laughs>